You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, September 28th, 2016, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Kara Santamaria. Howdy. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Good evening, folks. So, guys, I have solar panels on my roof now. What? When did you do that? Awesome. How did that happen? Was it a surprise? I don't know. These people just showed up and started putting them up there. (laughs) Were they they elves? (laughs) (laughs) No, I've been working on this for months. It takes a long time to go through the whole process. But now I'm going through a company that, you know, they put the panels up and they own the panels and then they sell you the electricity cheaper than what you get it from your regular provider. Uh huh. So I don't do anything, I just get cheaper electricity. What the hell? Yeah. That sounds too good to be true. So, Steve, how do they make your roof not leak? Did you talk to them about that? Yeah. What do you mean? My roof doesn't leak? No, I mean- Not they, yet. They have to attach the, <laughs> the structure, right? There's some type of armature that they put on yeah, your roof. that's right. correct. Okay, so now I'll restate my, my original question. How does that not make the yeah, roof leak? Yeah, how do those holes that they drill in your roof not leak? What do they do? Well, I'm sure they tar them back up. I mean- Yeah, just seal them I up. do remember when we re-roofed when we first bought the house, they were like, if you want to do solar- it's better to do it now while the shingles are off because they have to like mess up your shingles and then kind of patch all of those spots when they put on solar panels. But it didn't we, seem like, like I, mean, I watched the whole process. It didn't seem like they screwed up my shingles at all. Oh, that's good. So I learned a couple of things. It, there's a lot of wrinkles to uh, getting solar on your roof. But the good thing is like this company, since they're, I guess somehow they're making money off the whole thing, but because I guess they're going to be selling me the electricity from the solar panels. They do everything and they pay for everything. So literally it's not a dime out of my pocket up front, which is very nice. That's good. That's really nice. Yeah, because it's the startup fees that make it so that it's impractical for a lot of people. Yeah, and you, you know, I mean, I think if you have the cash, if you're sitting on the cash, it probably, and you're going to own your house for 20 years and you have whatever, there's a lot of variables, mm-hmm. it might make financial sense to buy it outright. And leasing is a little problematic. I mean, leasing may work as well, but as long as it's like a, leasing a car, as long as you got a good deal and you're leasing to own or whatever, but yeah. you, can, you can get screwed with leasing. And these kind of deals, you got to make sure you're dealing with a good company too, because they could screw you as well. They could, sell it to you cheap and then jack up the prices over time. So you have to make sure that you're locking in low prices over at least 20 years. Mm. What's also interesting is that they have to check with the local electric company, which in our case is UI, United Illuminating, to see if the local transformer, whatever transformer is serving your house, has the capacity to take the electricity from the solar panels. I see. And we were right on the edge. In fact, at first, UI said, nope, you don't have enough capacity. And then they said, no, I guess you do. They reevaluate, whatever. I don't know why they changed their mind. If you don't have enough capacity, you have to buy, you have to then pay for a transformer upgrade, which is like, which could be five to $10,000. You can't just buy a battery. You know, those like whole home batteries that people are starting to do. God, I want one of those. you mean to store the excess? Yeah, you just store all the electricity straight into your own battery, and then you feed your house out of that rechargeable battery. Yeah, but the thing with solar, the thing with solar is it, you got to put it in the grid. It's not like when the zombie apocalypse hits, Steve hits a switch and the solar goes to his house. It would require. You don't like have a little... to put it in the grid. You can put it into a battery with high capacitive storage. Yeah, but Kara, what's what's the battery's full? Then yeah. that electricity then has to it. go to the grid. So no matter how you slice it, it ha- you have to be rated so that the f- maximum peak output of those solar panels can go right to the grid. By and a second your, battery. Your local transformer has to- <laughs> By a second battery. 
has oh, yeah. to has to be able to handle it. They won't let you put it up there unless it has the capacity to handle that voltage. Well, so, yeah, you don't want to shut down electricity to your whole city. <laughs> that would be bad. What that means is that like if you if there are like you and four or five of your neighbors are going to one transformer, only one of you is getting solar panels on the roof. Well, that's if you live in a small place where your transformers aren't big. I think in LA, if five of my neighbors had solar panels, we'd be okay. I think no, it just totally no, because the, the, the trans—that's not true because the transformers are already allocated to their use. You know what I mean? It's like you have just enough transformers to get mm. the electricity to however many houses yeah. or units it's going to. So they didn't anticipate people doing this and exactly. being, being ready to sell yeah, that. Yeah, but there are like the there excess. are whole neighborhoods down the street from me where every house in like a two block radius has so they must have upgraded maybe they, they, upgraded. they, they yeah. paid for upgrades right so yeah, like the first person in is good you know what i mean but the, <laughs> the, the second person maybe then it's close to like but third person sounds like a pyramid scheme yeah, the, yeah. The, but beyond that either <laughs> you're screwed or you're paying for an upgrade you know there you go to in order to handle it what i think the states should just mandate that the uh, electricity company just pays for the upgrade. But of they course, they, they, could, would, they would ultimately charge it back to the customer. Yeah, sure. Yeah. It, would, it would diffuse the cost. But I mean, you know, that's just one way. If you're trying to encourage people to put solar panels on their house right now, you know, and the, these companies, the companies that are doing it for profit, like the company that I'm going with, they evaluate your house and decide if it's worth it to them to put solar panels on your house. So they, they, you know, evaluate how much light is hitting your roof, how much would it cost, you know, how many panels it's worth putting up there. And then they also assess the infrastructure cost. So if they have to pay five grand to put a transformer up, they'll say, no, they won't do it. Yeah. So you got to getting in early actually is there's an advantage you know, to being like the first in your neighborhood to go solar, I guess. Steve, did did you think that you were going to have access to that power yourself? No, I knew it was go to, goes to the grid. But and so I, st- I won't I won't be able to use these things for a couple of months because they have to all the inspections have to take place. But also uh, the company needs to install a two way meter. Right now, there's only the electricity is being metered coming to my house, but they need to meter it going out of the house as well. So that's another sort of state regulation, right? Like the state has to require that they meter electricity, you know, going to and from the home if you put up solar panels so that you get money. So they have to pay me for whatever electricity I put into the grid. Oh, you should see too if they offer a time of use meter because if there are ever times when you're actually – having to pay for electricity because you're not giving enough back to the grid. Um, at least here in LA, they have incentives, you know, because people drive electric cars and things like that, where if you use most of your electricity during off hours, if you have a time of use added to your meter, you'll get a discount on that electricity. So like anybody listening, you should check and see if you have that option to upgrade your your meter to a time of use meter because it's um it helps right it helps with the energy crisis especially with brownouts in the bigger cities and it um it can also make sure your electric bill's a little cheaper well that's awesome steve let me know like how it how it plays out you know i'd real i'm really interested i figured it was time i'm you know as you know we're always following the uh the tech news like even today just today i'm looking at news oh a new breakthrough on perovskite Solar panel is going to dramatically increase, you know, the uh, the efficiency. But what's actually happening is that the efficiency of solar panels is going up pretty steadily, about two percent per year. So there's no point in waiting. Not going to be any dramatic, I don't think, change. At least nothing that is on the on the horizon. 
And I think if you do it now, it'll help because you know, and everyone can't wait for it to, like to cross some imaginary optimal line of efficiency. The you know, industry would never be able to get there. Would never be able to take off. So anyway, well, whatever. Is I it going to slow time. down? You think? I mean, that two percent is actually not insignificant at all. No, it builds up over time. I don't know. Who knows, Jim? Yeah, Fifty years, hundred percent. Um, but Steve, yeah, figured- we, we've crossed that line where it's actually there's you know for depending on what state you're in, et cetera, et cetera. That for a lot of people, there's no reason not to do this. You know, it's just use your roof, put up solar panels, you get cheaper electricity, and it's and you're generating greenhouse gas free electricity. The idea that all this solar radiation is leaving the sun, this little tiny little patch of solar radiation is hitting the roof at Steve's house. Now imagine how many roofs of Steve's house there is out there that we're not collecting. Yeah. Most of them. Uh, <laughs> yeah, most of them. 99.99%. But the point is like there is a, a significant amount of solar radiation hitting our planet that we can ca- – significant, like a huge amount of power hitting our planet. And so much of it, the vast majority of the energy is just going into outer space with no way for us to collect it yet. You know, but it wouldn't be amazing if we were like, hey, we have solar array things that are all over the place, you know, maybe in the same orbit as Earth or, or I don't know. I don't even know if that's even possible, but collecting sure. a ton of solar radiation. Oh, yeah. So get this, yeah, guys. Absolutely. Tell, tell me see, what's your, what is your guess? So I use mm-hmm. – my house uses a lot of electricity, tons of electronic mm-hmm. devices, electrical air conditioning. Uh, so th- throughout the year, though it's a lot more in the summer, but even th- throughout the year, I use a lot of juice. Uh, how much – what percentage of my electrical use do you think will be covered by the electrical generation of the solar panels on the roof of my house? 25%. I think uh, it'll be high. I think you might get close to it depending on time of year. You mean over the course over of the, the whole year? Over the whole course of the year. Mm, you're in Connecticut. Mm. Yeah. And I don't remember. Your roof was pretty clear. You were like in a cul-de-sac. Totally clear uh, roof. 15%. I know. I think it'll be more like 70%. I think it'll be high. No, yeah, wait, wait. High. You want to know what percentage of your total electrical use you're going to be collecting? Yes. And giving back to the power. Uh, uh, 15, I'll say 10%. Wow. One, say, 100%. Yes, I knew it. I knew it. One hundred percent, because they looked at my electricity awesome. bill from the entire year before. So they could see exactly how much electricity I used. They calculated from the sun exposure and the number of panels. They're putting enough panels on my roof to cover a hundred percent of my electricity use. Which so means all your you may come out in the in the black on average. Years. On average, on average, over the course of a year, yeah, you yeah, average so you might out end up making money sometimes. Well, I don't make it. They make it because uh, I'm, uh, they own it. Right. They, but here's the other thing. The, the solar panels they put on my roof, if I bought them outright, would cost $90,000. Yeah. Although with rebates, you get a lot of that back from the state. So it would be wow, like sixty. that's be, how expensive but it, they are. Yeah. would have been would have been like sixty grand out of pocket if I just bought them outright. So which well, I especially because uh, he's got enough to cover 100% of his that's, yeah, That's it. It's a big that's install. That's why. Yeah. It just so happens that my roof is arranged so that both sides are worth putting solar panels on. But like I said, if I, if my house were facing south, for example, they would only put them on half of the roof, you know, only the south facing half. But mine is like right in the middle so that both sides will get enough light to make it worthwhile to put solar panels on. So so my whole roof is going to be covered with solar panels. That's why it's going to cover 100% of my electricity. But that's interesting. I got to do this. It's interesting. I'm so jealous. 100%. Yeah, hundred percent. So if you 
So if you well, I was going to say that if you bought them outright, you you would disconnect from the grid, but that doesn't account for no. You wouldn't. You still would not be able to do it. You still would be selling it back to the company, you putting it to the grid and taking it from the grid because it's not going to. But you would bank the money. Well, yeah, but then you have to calculate how many years would it take to pay off the solar panels. Twenty to it could take. It could take twenty years. Yeah. So it's yeah. Again, it it probably is not dramatically different when you calculate it out, but it. it, it, there are some scenarios where it might be advantageous to buy it and others where yeah. it isn't. It's just not not a good financial idea to buy it. You're better off That's right. just getting the cheaper electricity and, and not – the other thing is they'll maintain it. They'll ma- I don't have to do anything. It's totally yeah. on them. They own it. They're just basically it- using the roof of my house and selling me the electricity. You definitely want to look at like where you live and what kind of incentives are available to you because you've got federal, state, and oftentimes city depending on where you are. So definitely like – you want to research all of that. Exactly. Oh, Interesting. I want to do it. Yeah. I'm going to do it. Yeah, yeah. It's it's It feels good to know that like all my electricity is going to be generated through solar energy. Very Sweet. cool. Steve, if you plug that into your house, got off the grid, I wonder how much more solar – how many more solar panels you would need to cover you the for the entire year in, in any you know in any situation. Well, you yeah. just need backup power. I need backup. a lot of batteries. Yeah, yeah, yeah you need a lot of batteries because obviously array. you're at a hundred percent. So if you had a lot of batteries, you'd be okay. But like, I, bet you, winter, I bet you, I bet you, I'm at a top of a hill. I have a lot of wind, especially during the times here when I don't have a lot of sun. I bet you if I had one windmill, I would be, I could be almost all and end batteries. I could probably be off the grid. They have sure. these windmills that are like they're tubes. little ones. Yeah, that you could put them on the apex of the roof of your house, and it's like a tube. So there aren't these free swinging blades, <laughs> and so yeah, it's something like that. I mean, so if you combine solar panels and then put a couple of those portable little windmills on top on top of your house, especially if you get wind, you could yeah, that's a lot of renewables that and little each, geothermal too. <laughs> you know, a little, little geothermal. Little geothermal. What do you think the future holds, though? Do you think that neighborhoods or towns will will all have like their own solar array? Like, think about this: twenty years from now. We might have a couple of breakthroughs or whatever, but you know, solar panels are going to be forty percent more efficient if the if the curve is consistent or even more. You never know. That's really a lot of electricity that you can. I think gain it'll from- be mandated in certain areas. I mean, in Los Angeles, for example, you can't put a new roof on your house unless it's a certified cool roof, meaning that it has to be white or light gray. Mm-hmm. Nobody, wow. unless you're grandfathered, you cannot put a dark roof on your house anymore. Wow. Like, wow. screw style, it's, you, you need a light roof. So I think we're going to see in, in some of the cities that are more, um, uh, I think, progressively minded that there will be mandated um, clean energy initiatives for the citizens. Right. But here, that, here. that only makes sense in a very warm climate because like, in yeah. Connecticut, that would be great in the summer. But in the winter, you want a black roof. You know? No, it'd be bad for you. Yeah, but in so, LA, it's a it's a horrible idea to ever have a dark roof on your yeah. house, like year oh, so, round. Yeah. Good question. What happens when what happens with snow buildup on the panels? Is it, Do they have little, it, win- is there, little white? They have a robot that they they have in a little <laughs> hut on the roof. That's thing. a good question. I think a they're drone, heated. A drone they're fan. Heated. Oh, so derp! They're heated. I would I would that, hope they're heated. That makes yeah. that makes perfect <laughs> sense. You know what I want? I want in my, I want in my backyard a a nuclear react a fission or fusion reactor buried <laughs> in the, and Thorium I'd be good reactor. for fifty years. Yep. Fifty Full years. On Mark done. And Bob, it would only have to be about the size of a of a what a, a lunchbox or something. Yeah. It wouldn't be that big. <laughs> It'd be no, for one house. No, it's yeah, the size it of like an outhouse. Can you yeah. imagine that? Yeah, that would yeah. Be they a have reactor. Them, Kara, you could buy. No, but you these. can't get it smaller. 
No, no, it has to because it's you know it's a self-functioning nuclear reactor, man. This is the one no in joke. the Martian was like the size <laughs> no of a like a big cooler. Yeah, it, fit, it fit inside the. It wasn't that the, uh, small, or it wasn't that big. That was different. Room. That was that was using the you know the the decay. Uh, yeah, that's um, just radioactive nuclear decay. decay yeah, create, uh, yeah, but that wasn't that a waste product in the movie. It was a waste product. That's yeah. true. They yeah. buried it with a with a skull and crossbones, so you don't. It wasn't yeah. that dangerous. That was that was <laughs> one of the scientific mistakes. Right. It was yeah, not they that never dangerous. would have worried about burying it. That's true. Damn All it. right. <laughs> well, let's go All on. Right. Uh, Carol, we're going to start with a what's the word this week? Awesome. So the word this week was suggested by a listener named Steel. What a cool name. His first name is Steel <laughs> Blue from Steel? Indiana. I know, right? Um, so Steel, thank you for sending this in. And the word is apophenia. Do you, have you guys referenced this word a lot in the show before I joined? Not a you lot, a few times. We have it's mentioned it. We have mentioned it. Yeah, it's a good one. So, according to the Merriam-Webster uh, Medical Dictionary, apophenia is the tendency to perceive a connection or meaningful pattern between unrelated or random things, such as objects or ideas. And uh, they cited an August thirtieth, two thousand four reference from the Post and Courier in Charleston, South Carolina, as a good usage. The promise of the data age is that the truth really is in there somewhere, but our age has a curse too: apophenia, the tendency to see patterns that may or may not exist. Um, it's not quite synonymous with uh, paradox. Pareidolia, which is actually kind of a type of apophenia. Right, um, right. That one specifically refers to finding patterns in visual data, like seeing faces where there are none. It's more sensory data, Kara. So pareidolia, data, that's true. Because it could visual. be visual or it could be or hearing. Could be sound. Whereas yes. apophenia could be just uh, ideas. You know, it's not, yeah. not just sensory data. Yeah. That's true. In pareidolia, you might hear a sound or, you know, like we've talked about a lot, like the phantom um, ringtone, if you hear something that sort of relates to that, or you might hear your name in a in a in the noise of a crowded room or something like that. But with apophenia, definitely ideas um, are often connected. And further definitions in other dictionaries actually clarify that it could be a normal phenomenon of everyday life. A lot of people experience it, or it can refer to a clinical symptom, such as in schizophrenia, when apparent connections and patterns may feel oppressive or ominous um, and kind of persecutory. So that that sort of lends itself to the etymology. It was first coined in German, uh, its German form from psychiatrist Klaus Conrad in 58. He was describing the onset of a psychotic episode in patients with schizophrenia. The roots of the term are apo, meaning away, and phanin, meaning uh, to show. Those are both Greek roots. Um, so think of it this way, an apophany is in contrast to an epiphany. Whoa. Because the latter, yeah, right? The latter is rooted in reality. Um, You have an epiphany when two things connect meaningfully and you're like, oh my God, I get it. Whereas an apophany is not rooted in reality. It's when two things seem to connect, but they don't. Apophenia. Oh, I love that word. Right? It's so good. I gotta use it. I gotta use it. More often. So good. Yeah, it's a cool word. Yeah. Good for the skeptic toolkit, for sure. Yeah, I was just going to say that. Put that one (laughs) in your toolkit. All right, Jay, you got a couple of uh, NASA news or space exploration news items you're going to talk about. So, yeah, so Tuesday, September 20th, 2016, that was last week as we record this, NASA made an announcement that they um, they made some incredible findings. They always like to tantalize us before they tell us what the thing is to build up. Why do they do that? We're going to announce something really cool in two days, 
And then they, why don't just announce it? Just come out. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. It gets well, people speculating on what it is, and it, it's a little yeah, intriguing. Yeah, you got to hype space. That's but it set, it sets you up for disappointment because usually you're thinking something you know much more interesting than, than what happens. <laughs> yeah, but you you are not a typical consumer of this kind of news. Think about the kind of quote unquote John Q public. Like, let's get us excited so that. We, no, I I think the, the public goes even crazier. I think they're thinking aliens, whatever. They're just they're, oh, yeah. <laughs> we know it's going to be like yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because you know then right. when they announce whatever they have to announce, we're like oh, all right, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's not life. All right, whatever. It's, yeah. a, it's not close encounters. They, the ships aren't haven't landed. <laughs> so I think they did say that they took imagery of Europa or something to do with Europa, but they made us wait until the 26th, which was two days ago as we we record this, to find out what it was. The latest mission to observe Europa had a finding that surprised most people. There was evidence that plumes of saline water were shooting from Europa's surface, which I think is freaking awesome. And if these findings are actually true, then the ocean that's beneath the surface, which you really can't see it, of course, from the images, um, is it's more reachable. It's more reachable than NASA Absolutely. originally thought, which I think is is really cool. So, using Hubble's ability to see in the ultraviolet spectrum, um, they over a fifteen month period, as they were observing Europa, they observed it uh, ten different times, and three of those times, water eruptions were seen coming from the surface. The water is either coming from the ocean or from an alien base, you know, deep, deep below the surface, (laughs) but it's most likely coming from the ocean. Now, these plumes of water reach about 200 kilometers or 125 miles from the surface, 125 miles of shooting water. That That, is insane. It's insane. And the then pressure the water, is incredible. The yeah, but, the, comes, the, but keep in mind, Europa low gravity, that much low gravity. gravity. Yeah, it's low gravity. Oh. So. That's still so crazy. It, whatever. It's you, like the biggest geyser ever. You could spit 120 miles on Europa. <laughs> That's so cool. But the water some, does some moon back down on Europa. Jump in the air and go into orbit. You could ride that. That'd be a fun ride. Maybe Imagine we finally get like yeah. a theme park out on Europa and they put like a water ride. You ride the plume, yeah, you know? Don't lose your tether. So cold. Yeah. <laughs> and you're bombarded with radiation. Yes, I hope you have a good radiation suit. Good wet suit, radiation suit. Exactly. All right, so, so, so the water comes back down. The water, yes. And it, it probably down. in the form of ice crystals and other Burr. squid-like aliens that get shot out from that, that you, know, it's, I, you know, I can't help that myself. That video game. So. Yeah. The team who found the plumes were looking at Europa when it was in its transit of Jupiter. Steve, that means it's passing in front of, okay? In case you be, know. It would be hard to see it when it's behind Jupiter. Exactly. <laughs> so Europa passes in front of Jupiter, and then they were able to, um, for some reason, when, it, when it's in the transit, they could see things better. These uh, findings are important for a couple of reasons. First, they lead us to believe that there is warm saline water below Europa's surface. Guys... This screams potential life. I mean, sure. it, I'm like scared and excited at the same time. I think Gotta it's have, awesome. Yep, water. And warm water. I mean, gee, man, if there's bacteria in that water, could you imagine, guys, like real bacteria? Like, all right, you know, then you got to start doing all, what kind of bacteria is it? Does it have DNA? Is there any of that bacteria found on Earth in any, you know, like, oh my God, forget about it. It's Amazing. a scientific discovery of ever if we yep. find life oh, off gosh. the Earth. Whatever the obvious thing here, we have to send a probe to Europa. And oh, check absolutely! It out. Oh, okay, that's yep. what this is setting up. Yes, that makes a, me a think specific of mission. 
two things. Well, one thing, really. Um, I, I know some people at NASA who are specifically on the Europa mission because that's out of JPL, which is very close to my house. And without naming any names, I can I tell you that you. they have wanted <laughs> to do a probe mission for ages. I don't think NASA's interested in a probe. NASA's really but pushing for an orbiter. We have a, we have a mission um, that's on the table to, to happen sometime in the 2020s. Probe? A pro- orbiter. No, an orbiter, not a probe. Yes, that's what I'm saying. They specifically have poo-pooed the idea of a probe. But I think what's really cool is that these geysers... Don't poo-poo the probe. I know. They poo-pooed <laughs> the probe. I don't know why. And so there are a lot of people pushing real hard for the probe. The higher-ups don't want the probe. They want the orbiter, which I guess is kind of an incremental approach. You would kind but of need both, I would what think. What if you it. flew into the geyser? What if I know, the orbiter got that low? Kara, exactly. Now that we know that there's a, apparently these holes... That go down to the ocean, guys. You know how far down it is. You know, far ten feet. That some of the a lot of the <laughs> ice is considered to be warmer ice, so it's not as hard to drill through. But it's it's um uh, up to a hundred kil- uh, kilometers or sixty miles worth of ice. It's insane. It's insane. Yeah. It's a lot. yeah wow. So, but if there's cracks big enough, you know, I mean, if the water's coming up from somewhere. Yeah, if the water's coming up. That you makes sense. I mean, I'll tell you, I visited a lab where they're working on prototypes of drills to dig into the ice, and we weren't allowed to air the footage because NASA's like, this is never going to happen. But I did think of something, Kara. Yes. I think we should invent the phaser, right? <gasps> we invent the phaser first. Listen, very important. <laughs> we invent the phaser, yeah. mm-hmm. then we can yeah. put a phaser on a probe that has a robot arm. It could shoot the ice and melt the, a hole right down to the ocean, and then we're good to go, and then we get phasers. Or, or we could just orbit and collect a sample while we're in orbit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, don't want to be cool. Why go sure. simple when you can be overly complex? <laughs> Fine. You know, once they confirm, if they confirm those geysers, that should be our number one, you know, orbiter priority above Mars. Oh, completely. For Anything our, else? For our planetary. Well, they've space got to mission? rethink sure. the science that they're putting into the Europa mission right now. What do you guys think of the chances are that there is a creature on that planet? I think you they're going to be a living uh, molecule. Define no, a creature. I, something no, bigger, you, bigger than bacteria, like a crawling thing. Uh, I think it's going to uh, be bacterial, or maybe like protozoan, like somewhere in that realm. I think uh, it's so, still going to so be still unicellular. Micros- still microscopic. I think it will yeah. clearly be chemosynthetic. How about mm. how about a uh, a water puppy or whatever they're called? A water puppy. <laughs> a oh, a water bear, bug bear. Yeah. Uh, mo- um, moss, what, a, what do you think about moss those? Piglet. Yeah, moss piglet. Yeah, there might be some moss piglets there. Well, those are how many cells do they have? That would be amazing. The that's pretty. That, that's pretty. That's pretty advanced. Multi- yeah, yeah. They have yeah. Mouth big, parts and stuff. big time multicellular. That's pretty advanced. Yeah, that's true. But they're small. I don't know. Like I don't know. I'm wondering mm-hmm. if this is really new info is this really new information i mean i know it's new information because we have direct observation but don't most europa researchers already know that there were like geysers i think it's the first evidence of it i mean it's the first evidence. Okay. other other moons have geysers but enceladus, I'm not enceladus has a geyser yeah gotcha gotcha so this is the first direct kind of measured evidence but it's not yet confirmed Right. It's not 100% with the data that they have. They want to take a look at it with infrared uh, observers. I think when the uh, the James Webb telescope goes up, that will could do some confirming observations. But these these observations were with the Hubble. Yeah. That's uh, right. Yeah. yeah. Hubble. Still doing, I'll tell you still what. doing good science. Yeah. I'll tell you what. Well, gosh, how important has that instrument been in our Oh, oh I know, right? It doesn't quit. Out, it's still kicking outrageous. ass. So you guys remember the solar freaking highways or roadways? Oh, uh, yeah, of course. Oh, oh gosh. How Don't could get I forget? Because Thunderfoot 
lumped me into a solar roadway rant when I did a story for a local news show here about something completely separate. Yeah. Yeah, So anytime anybody brings up solar roadways, I get like Google hits on it. It's so annoying. (laughs) (laughs) Well, have you heard of piezoelectric freaking roadways? What's piezoelectric? Okay. The the piezoelectric? Yes, I have. (laughs) (laughs) It's just (laughs) probably just as uh, impractical, but it's an interesting idea. So the piezoelectric, Kara, is a property of some crystals okay. uh, whereby if you – mechanical forces or mechanical strain is translated into electrical current. So if you squeeze them or pull them or distort the crystal, it generates a voltage difference across the crystal. And of course, if you, if you then like, a, you know, one side becomes positive, one side becomes negative. And if you attach, you know, electrodes to them, if you make a circuit out of it, it'll generate electricity. Oh my God. How has the Santa Monica woo peddling, like, you know, <laughs> yeah, right? not Magic utilized crystals. this crystal rooms that could power your house? This is crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Problem is it doesn't generate a lot of electricity, right? So generating very small amounts of electricity, but it's basically transferring mechanical force into electrical current. Pretty cool. So the the idea is to embed a lot of these crystals into asphalt on roads. And then as cars drive over them, the compression force of the weight of the vehicles will compress these piezoelectric crystals and will Mm -hmm. harvest the electricity. And yeah. oh, collects it. Yeah, but don't we, they we somehow collect it? Then? Steve, can I ask yeah. you a question? Is it harder for the cars to drive over that surface, or is it just we're capturing what would have been heat energy from yeah. the, the friction? So you're anticipating the big question I was going to save to the end. Uh, <laughs> it's true. That's that, that's a really good question, and I don't know the answer to that. I could not find the answer to that. But let let me. We'll get there. Back to that in a second. We'll circle right. back. So the the idea is to capture energy that would otherwise be wasted, right? Compressing the asphalt essentially just heats it up. And rather than all of that energy just getting dissipated as vibrations, noise, and heat or whatever, some of it, probably a small amount, but some of that energy will be captured as electrical current from these piezoelectric crystals. So the reason why we're talking about this is because the California Energy Commission granted $2 million to study the feasibility of doing just that, putting piezoelectric crystals into California roads. Hmm. So I think, to me, $2 million, meh. I mean, that's a very small investment This on something that probably isn't going to work, but we'll probably learn something you know, from doing these this kind of research. Uh, it's not the first body to look into this. Uh, there was an Israeli study a few years ago and a project to, to test the feasibility of piezoelectric crystals in roads, and they abandoned it as not working. So why are we – oh, no. Okay. Well, yeah, whatever. So, yeah, so some people <laughs> are saying, well, hey, isn't this already been disproven? But, you know, one – Israeli project isn't necessarily the final word. Little replications in order. Again, you know, on the, on, if you look at energy budget or just, you know, all the money that the government's spending, $2 million to look at one, you know, somewhat unlikely, but not, not impossible way of capturing some energy. Yeah. It's, it's probably not the best, you know, use of this money, but I don't, I think it's not unreasonable. But guys, doesn't something tell you here, like this might be complete bullshit? Well, of course, yeah. <laughs> there are many questions, and and you could say, well, this is a research project, so they're trying to answer these questions. Okay. So one of them is what you asked, Jay. So 
Is the energy that would be harvested by these piezoelectric crystals, is that all energy that would otherwise be wasted? Obviously, this isn't a great source of energy. This is just recapturing a little bit of lost energy. Um, you know, if you could think about it as recapturing some of the inefficiency, uh, the energy that's wasted in driving cars, you know. Whenever we run any kind of machine, if you can hear it and if it heats up, that's sound and heat or energy radiating away from the system. That's wasted energy, not doing whatever the engine was designed to do. So um, some of the energy of cars is not propelling the car forward, but compressing the ground underneath it. Um, so in any case, the question is uh, – when you compress the asphalt, and when I wrote about this, a lot of people asked this very question. They said, okay, when you compress the asphalt, does it bounce back? I mean, it obviously does. Otherwise, it would just get comp progressively compressed, which it does to some degree, of course. But, um, you know, it, it, there is a little bit of elasticity there. So if the, if the asphalt, when it bounces back, is it giving a little bit of energy back to the car? And if it bounces back less because some of that energy – got translated into electricity, will it cost a little bit more gasoline to drive that car? So, so interesting. Yeah. So and, and will that offset the electricity that we're harvesting with these piezoelectric crystals? So I thought that was a very interesting question. And it's always good to ask those kind of questions. Is the energy really coming from where we think it's coming from? Or is it adding an inefficiency to the system that will offset whatever electricity we're generating? Whenever you're dealing with really small amounts of electricity, that's a good question to ask. I could not find anyone who did the calculation or whatever to answer that question. My sense is that it's so complicated that they're going to have to just do it empirically, just, you know, just see what if it costs a little bit, tiny little bit more energy to drive over these roads with piezoelectric crystals than without. Uh, it's interesting to think about that. But there's also other questions as well. Like what's the efficiency going to be? I did find some papers looking at that. But again, the answer to how efficient piezoelectric crystals are is it depends on a ton of variables. Uh, one paper I found concluded that a maximal efficiency of an, uh, of this theoretical optimal system is about 44%. Of course, you're never going to get to that optimal, you know, theoretical maximum. What does that mean exactly? Like if it's 44% efficient. So 44% of the energy that you put into squeezing the crystal comes out of it as electricity. That's what that means. And is that is that regenerative second to second? Or is that something where like... Yeah, it's a current. You are generating a current. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it's constant. But if you plug in real world variables, you're down in the 3 to 5% efficiency range. I suspect, yeah, you're going to get single digit efficiency out of these things. It could be even as low as 1%, who know, or less, you know. Mm -hmm. I think these Yeah, but then the cost It's very return. low. Yeah, yeah, and then are they expensive the crystals? Well, there's all different quartz is a piezoelectric crystal, right? So it, it depends on the kind of there's lots of different crystals that have piezoelectric. Are the efficient ones expensive? <laughs> yeah, that's what one question is how much is it going to cost? What's the energy use to manufacture them, to embed them in the asphalt, to hook them up, to you know wire them up or whatever? How are you going to get that current? You got to have yeah, wires attached. Be to them. Wired. Yeah, they got to be wired. <sighs> and then, how long do they last? You know, do they, will they last as long as the road does? And how uh, quickly will they all, will their efficiency degrade as the potholes develop and the road degrades? I don't think that roads are a good place to focus our efforts because roads 
take a lot of abuse and there's a lot of built-in costs to maintaining them, et cetera. And I just suspect that anytime we try to build in any kind of energy production into roads, the, the inefficiency costs are going to overwhelm whatever energy we're generating. So, you know, maybe there's going to be some niche applications. Who knows? I think same thing with the solar you know, pavers, it's the same thing. Maybe there's some niche applications. We're not going to be paving our roads with piezoelectric no. crystals. You know, that's, I just don't think that's going to happen. You know, unless you could, you could imagine one day where, yeah, where we could mass produce some piezoelectric crystals so cheap that you could actually, it's just as cheap as paving roads, you know, with them as with asphalt or whatever. There's like no reason not to do it. But, and Steve, uh, wouldn't it be an MF or if like we, we pave the whole country with these roads and then somebody invents the hover car? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good news, everyone. Good news. <laughs> but they don't, the hover cars don't work over roads that have piezoelectric crystals. <laughs> oh, it interferes with the, uh, with the hydraulic converter with the system. Yeah. <laughs> right. right. So anyway, interesting idea. I think it's going to be eminently impractical, but we'll spend $2 million to prove that. It's not going to be practical. That's what I predict. But we'll, we'll follow. Well, the California story. will. You mean us. we'll spend two million? <laughs> yeah, yeah. gets you, Kara. <laughs> Dang it! Okay, we're going to take a quick break from our show to hear from our sponsor this week. What if you could go back in time and change the past? Would it destroy the future? Monday, Timeless premieres. This guy went back in time trying to rewrite history. It could change the present in ways we can't predict. Critics are calling Timeless, thrilling, eye-popping, full of action and adventure. Who are you? We're actually... This is Dr. Dre. I'm Nurse Jackie. We're from General Hospital. Timeless, season premiere after The Voice, Monday on NBC. All right, Bob, I've heard these crazy claims of unhackable computer code. What's going on here? Yes, and we're talking about our good friend DARPA. They're doing some way cool shit. Again, this time it's with computer programs. Essentially, they've advanced the state of art of a little-known type of software system called formal verification um, that can essentially make code bug-free and unhackable. That's the claim. Yes, you you heard that right. Um, it sounds fascinating as hell with, inc- with amazing ramifications. Um, and in my opinion, it's worth – wait for it. Billions of dollars of R&D. Um, I really think so. I, I mean, I've mentioned on the show many times that I'm very uh, concerned about cybersecurity and what people can do from the other side of the planet uh, without leaving their computer. It's kind of scary. So um, when I first uh, heard of this, though, I thought it's, it was totable. And I'm sure Jay would agree. Uh, Jay and I are in IT. We work with developers. We've written code. We, we know the software development lifecycle. Zero software bugs is a, is a pipe dream. You can never find them all. You're never going to get rid of all your bugs ever. Um, and so when I heard this, I was like, come on, really? But I mean, we're talking DARPA. So I definitely, uh, you know, suspended my disbelief a little bit and went through the research. Um, so essentially it's, it's these bugs or code errors that, that make computer systems hackable. That's pretty much the problem. Uh, they, uh, they are what give hackers the ability to exploit your system and lock up your damn computer when you're surfing for porn. The programs that you use every day though, they're written informally. Uh, they're tested to make sure that they mostly work and, uh, you can't possibly test every possible path of every type of input. Which is why wacky stuff happens to you when you're when you're using a program uh, sometimes. Um, 
And it's also why uh, sometimes uh, there are security breaches because they are taking advantage. They're 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 exploiting your system. So, but formal verification though creates software that's kind of like a mathematical proof. It's very similar to a mathematical proof. So there's this ineluctable logic as it flows from one statement to the next. Now, there's two major parts to to this t- type of system. You've got the the formal specification. Now, that's basically a way of determining and defining exactly what a, a computer program does. Now, granted, that's it's, for a big systems that would be difficult, but but it it has been done with with small systems and there's also formal verification which is the way of showing mathematically beyond any doubt that a program's code exactly achieves the specification that you laid out that you laid out first so that's that's it in a nutshell i know it's kind of hard to wrap your head around it. I had to read this a few times. So I'll throw, I'll throw you a quote from Brian Parno. He's a researcher. Uh, uh, he researches formal verification and he happens to work for uh, security at Microsoft Research. So he said, you're writing down a mathematical formula that describes the program's behavior and using some sort of proof checker that's going to check the correction, the correctness of that statement. So that so that's basically it. It really is a mathematical proof is a fantastic analogy for this. So um, now this idea is not new. Actually, it's many many decades old. I think even Turing flirted with it a bit. Um, but uh, th- I think they quickly realized that it would be just way too much work, uh, a, a huge effort, and the gains were actually sus- suspect at that time because the fact was that conventional programming worked well enough. You know, you end up with a program that works most of the time. Uh, bugs were uh, more often than not little more than just an inconvenience. You know, sure, maybe your computer would crash, something would go wrong, start it up again, and you're pretty much okay. But what? What? So what changed that, guys? What do you the think internet. changed that attitude? Yeah, the internet totally <laughs> changed that. Now computers can be hacked remotely, thousands or more computers at a time. And in addition, and what I'm uh, most afraid of, uh, the, the risk of hacked, you know, a hacked nuclear facility or other safety critical systems are the it's reaching scary proportions or your self-driving car well right and that just happened yeah and that just happened not too long ago they showed that they that they could be hacked now that's the kind these are the kinds of things that this form of verification can do away with so clearly uh, it was time to resurrect the concept of formal verification and but luckily though things have changed in in the decades since they really were looking at this earlier uh the, the theoretical support is much much better uh the software tools to make it happen are vastly superior to what was available decades ago or even years ago. So so the tools and the theory behind all of this um have just ramped up so much. Um and when you combine that with the incredible need for this, uh it just it just was this you know perfect storm of of necessity and ability. Um so what really uh convinced me though about this uh, that they were onto something was a test that they did last year. So DARPA invited a red team to hack an unmanned military helicopter uh, that's known as Little Bird. Now, red teams, you may not have heard of those. Red teams are essentially white hat hackers. These are, these are elite hackers that are good guys. Uh, you've seen them on, on TV and movies. I mean, how many? You can't even count. Uh, I've seen them quite often. What they do is they hack into a system like real hackers would uh, for the express purpose, though, of improving the security of the system that they're hacking. 
basically, they know what the hell they're doing. They're, they're, they are elite. They're really at the top of their game. And they actually work with, um, they work with the, uh, the companies that say a, a company would hire the red hat, the red team. Uh, they would work with the security in the, uh, in the company and they would actually collaborate at, like after the fact. It's like, here's what we learned. Here are the problems. So it's that kind of, uh, communication between these two teams are, are critical to improve the security. These red team hackers, they had their hands on this, on this, uh, this uh, military drone and they were given, actually, they were given a gift. They were given access to some of the computer system, uh, which is something that, um, hackers wouldn't normally have. Yeah, absolutely right, Evan. Normally, the, you don't start off with that. You, you would have to earn that. They were just given this, this incredible uh, thing. And, uh, and normally, if, if that happened, normally it would be like these experts hacking your, your Wi-Fi at home. It would, it would be fairly trivial for them to actually do this. They had their hands on it for six weeks and they could not bust out of that system. They, they couldn't make any progress. Theoretically, theory would tell you that they failed because it's impossible. Uh, and m- my guess, another way to look at this is that breaching it would be like proving a theorem wrong after it has already been proven right. Uh, let's see, Kathleen Fisher, she's the founding program manager of what's called HACMS, H-A-C-M-S. That's the High Assurance Cyber Matil- uh, Military System project. And this is the project that DARPA uh, is working on right now. This is what, what this is what I'm talking about. She said that uh, that that result made all of DARPA stand up and say, oh, my goodness, we can actually use this technology in systems we care about. So they, they really saw that this proof of concept, w- there really is something there. I mean, when these guys have have something for six weeks and can make no progress, that, that was something that really got their attention. I find that the whole idea interesting that what makes code hackable is is the bugs you know that, yeah and that yeah that a bug-free program would be inherently unhackable is interesting i, I wonder if that's literally true but that, that i had the same thought i hadn't yeah. really thought of it in those terms of that it's really the bugs and it makes sense but is there any other type of maybe the, the way the the code is architected and put together uh is that could that make it inherently hackable as well and even if there's no bugs uh, but from what they're saying it's really just the bugs and so yeah, based yeah. on what i've read it's really just the bugs that yeah but maybe that doesn't it doesn't exclude like like you guys are hinting at the idea of an exploit and the exploit could have something to do with the way things are communicating with each other as an example and not so much like wow there's a an obvious bug in this system right so as an example um you could there's a bug uh, you know a lot of it's been cleaned up at this point but a lot of websites used to have it where you could in a text field on a website you could write database code, like you could write SQL code inside of that text field to to gain access to the database. Be- so then what, what programmers realize is they have to like search for certain types of symbols inside the text field and strip them out. So you can't actually get into um you know the database that way. Or now it's it's a lot more advanced nowadays. But the bottom line is that's really an exploit. That's taking advantage of the system. And, you know, you could call it a bug, but it's not really like, oh, I made a mistake. It's more of, I didn't harden harden the system against every single way that someone could get in there and take advantage. So there's a big difference between a bug and an exploit. But, you know, Bob, you know, Bob's talking, I'm asking questions about the operating system and things like that, because if this software thing that Bob is talking about is, 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 compiled and written in an operating system and it has to talk to that operating system to do the things that it does. There could be an exploit in between 
the app and the OS, that doesn't necessarily mean the app is faulty in any way. It just means that, you know, it's not hardened against communication between outside sources and stuff like that. It's super detailed and complicated. So when Bob says all this stuff, like unhackable and everything, I don't think you can say that. I think you can say- I thought they were building their own OS. They're not? Yeah, that yeah, that's that. Like like, like I said, if, if they're their creating own platform, yeah, if they're if they're going to one of the goals here is to create a, a, a completely a verified web server. That that's soup to nuts. And okay, I mean, that, that makes it, me yeah. feel better. But Bobby, you're right. I mean, they would would focus on little little pieces of code kernels that were critical, or that, that right. represent mission critical or yep. safety critical, absolutely, or security critical. Yeah, Evan, let me ask you a question. Okay, what's your sign? <laughs> what what is my sign currently or what was it a few days ago <laughs> well i'm uh, i'm technically a virgo i suppose um and i don't think that has changed even with the recent news and i'm telling you steve this has to go down as one of the worst reported news items of 2016 yeah. now it started really? it, it started with cosmopolitan magazine because we all start with cosmopolitan to get our science related ironclad source yes <laughs> yes more specifically the website cosmopolitan uk about 2 weeks ago when they ran an article titled don't freak out but your star sign has probably changed now i'm going to spare you the ugliness of the whole article by only sharing the first line with you which encapsulates it nicely. They said, NASA has decided to ruin our lives by updating the astrological signs for the first time in 2,000 years, meaning that a whopping 86% of us now have a different sign. <laughs> that, 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 <laughs> There's so, so much to unpack there. That was the spark that sort of uh, you know caught fire on the internet, because soon afterwards this, and I'm using the, uh, the air quotes now, news, uh, was parroted and twisted by other media outlets, for example, NBC's popular morning show, The Today Show, in which they said that NASA broke the news that the astrological signs have changed and there is actually a 13th sign of the Zodiac. And if you want, you can see an embarrassing video clip online where Matt Lauer and his company do a deep dive into each of their updated Zodiac signs. But the best one had to be Yahoo News' coverage with their headline of the year, which reads, Your astrological sign just changed, thanks to NASA. Those bastards at NASA. <laughs> People Magazine and National... first time in 2,000 years, too. <laughs> oh, gosh, it's, it's all... So, as if the headline wasn't bad enough, we know how bad headlines can be. Here's the first few sentences from the, from the Yahoo article. We don't want to be dramatic, but NASA just ruined our lives. For the first time in 3,000 years, they've oh. decided to update the astrological signs. This means that the majority of us are all about to experience a total identity crisis. Apparently, these changes are due to the fact that the constellations are not in the same position in the sky that they once were, and the star signs are about a month off now as a result. To further confuse things, there is now a new 13th sign called Ophiuchus, which those born between November 29th and December 17th are lucky enough to have to learn to pronounce. Oh, gosh. Uh, I don't know. Evan, that, go, that... go Ophiuchus yourself. Okay? Yeah, exactly. Couldn't get more wrong. Yeah. <laughs> and, if you, and if you do need a uh, reminder as to how to pronounce it, Ophiuchus rhymes with mucus. So for me, that's, that's kind of what helps me remember I, that. I, I've been saying of of I, I, I used to I used to call it that, but yep, yeah, it's Ophiuchus, and I did check Damn. that online, and online never lies, as we know. <laughs> but thanks to friends such as Phil Plate at the Bad Astronomy blog over at Slate.com, he had a nice 
answer to uh, Yahoo. Well, what did he say? News. I got to read he that. He said, "Cripes, no, no, and no." First off, NASA did not update the astrological signs. Second, the constellations haven't changed. And third, Ophiuchus is an ancient constellation identified by the Greeks thousands of years ago. Uh, so why is and this fourth astrology is bunk? <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Why the hell is this even? News in the first place, you know, Yahoo News, among others, they, gosh, when they say things like this and they do things like this, they really have a core problem here. They're failing to distinguish that astrology is not astronomy. Astrology is not scientific at all. So when you talk about NASA and the Zodiac in the same sentence or the same context, you really have a responsibility to get the context absolutely right. They are polar opposites. And the Zodiac is a set of constellations, which are star groupings in the nighttime sky, and we've given them nice names, such as Pisces, Aries, Gemini, Leo, Scorpio, and so forth. And there traditionally have been 12 of these constellations. And these constellations, as observed from Earth during the course of the year, our sun appears to traverse our sky and crosses through these constellations, roughly at the pace of a different one each month. And if a constellation is within the sun's path of our sky, that makes it part of the Zodiac. Now, people and cultures have observed this for thousands of years, and there's evidence dating back as far as 3,000 years ago to the time of the Babylonian Empire. Babylonians took note of the 12 constellations of the Zodiac, and with their 12-month calendar system, it all lined up nicely, and they decided, basically arbitrarily, to say, we're going to have one sign per month. But in doing so, the Babylonians left one constellation out of the Zodiac. Yep, they knew that there were actually 13 constellations which comprised the Zodiac, but because 12 worked much nicer in their formulas and with their calendar the constellation Ophiuchus was left out. But even that's arbitrary because there's there are other constellations in the it's, ecliptic. It's cultural. Yeah, there's, there's cultural as based. many as 21 different mm-hmm. constellations that the sun passes through. Some are bigger, some are smaller. It's totally arbitrary to just pick 12 of the big ones and say that's the zodiac. It's arbitrary. Or 13, right. but there could be, you know, there could be more. And Steve, the constellations themselves are arbitrary. Yes. You know, how, how do you know which stars to group together? I mean, come on, it's arbitrary all the way down. It's pareidolia. The interesting astronomy here is why the sun is not in the correct constellation as it was, you know, two to 3,000 years ago. And that's because of the precession of the equinoxes. So the Earth is spinning, it's right, it's rotating on its axis, and it's like a top, right? You know how if you spin a top, it rotates around as it right. spins? It doesn't stay perfectly up and, right, straight up and Unless down. Unless you're a it really good has spinner. A, it has a right. wobble so the north, the north Star will change over time and moving away from Polaris as it is now to yeah. some other... Some other star, yes. In 13,000 years, actually, Vega will be the closest star to the North Pole. That'll be the North Star, cool. be Vega. Then another, thir- whatever, almost 13,000 years, it'll be back to, to Polaris. So every like 25,800 years, the Earth, the Earth's axis rotates all the way around. And so as it rotates, it shifts where the constellations are with the seasons, right? And so, that's right. Yeah, so that's why it's just the, the seasons have shifted about. 30 days around, you know, the the procession, you know, of, of Earth's axis since uh, they were described 3,000 years ago. So then why why is it that Phil in this article is saying, no, NASA, like the headline of the article is, no, NASA didn't change your astrological sign? Because this is has nothing saying, to do with NASA. This has nothing to do with NASA. NASA gotcha. didn't so do anything. Because, yes. But he's not saying your astrological sign didn't change. Again, not that that means anything. 
It, no, it, saying it's NASA been, didn't do it. Nature did yeah. it. Yeah, it's just been shifting over the last 3,000 yeah. years. It's not, and NASA pointed our attention to it. They didn't even do that. They it, didn't it, even <laughs> do that. They, they, they're referencing a blog post that happened earlier in this year, a new graphic, basically, that, that NASA put out, mainly for kids and for you know teachers who teach the kids this stuff, to, to use in their, in their classrooms. And, that's, and somebody picked up on that and ran with it in this direction. Oh yeah, and this just totally already insane. happened a few months ago. Yeah, this comes up this every whole day. conversation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and yeah. the fact that there's a thirteenth constellation among the zodiac that we read that that's it's boy that is too. so not new and right and it's not new. There's nothing new to, at all to it that. It is hard We've to known pronounce that for a, though forever. And every few years it comes up in conversation and news items and so forth. So when this article says for the first time in three thousand years they've decided to update the astrological science, <laughs> I don't know how much more wrong you can be in a sentence. Well, it's funny. F- Phil notes at the end that uh, astrologers wrote an article blaming NASA for all this. And they, con- <laughs> they concluded, here's a deal, NASA. We won't meddle with the next space shuttle mission if you stop giving the world another astrological identity crisis. Oh, my And Phil's gosh. like, just a note, the space shuttle program ended in 2011. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. That is so awesome. <laughs> next stop. Okay, next. Yeah, let's, let's move on. That's a good place to end that one. All right, Jay, it's Who's That Noisy Time. Last week, I played this noisy. Oh, yeah. What was that? Well, well it's uh, the show intro. It's the show intro. Uh, a thousand yes, years yes. from now as it uh, <laughs> you know, decays and morphs over time. Or the signal was sent out into space for many years and then pulled back in on some court, sort of other frequency and we pulled it out of that signal. You are wrong. It was run through something. <laughs> okay. It's, it's the show intro having been run through some sort of program. Well, yeah, yes, but there's a lot more to it. Thank you for trying. Uh, <laughs> that noisy was sent in by a listener named, and my God, am I going to mispronounce this guy's name, is Boss Van Digic. That is a great name. It's awesome. Boss and Steel. They need to hang out. God, I hope I, I pronounced that correctly. He wrote to me and said um, a lot of awesome things. I can't read everything that he wrote to me because it's huge, but basically he is, uh, this guy has been working in cochlear implant research for the past 16 years and uh he is part of a company that's leading jay will that make you speak in a cockney accent yes thank you <laughs> he is yeah he, he's part of a company that that is leading implants for people that have this surgery to add the cochlear implants so have you figured it out that's what our intro would sound like simulated if you had a cochlear implant Oh, cool. Wait, wait, wait. What does that mean? So, so I'll tell you so, what it means. And this, okay. th- these implants are they're an, it's an electronic device and it's implanted into the cochlea or cochlea. the inner ear. Cochlea. cochlea. <laughs> it's the cochlea. Cochlea, cochlea, where it depends co- on what part of England you're from, younger. Or part of the body um, you're talking about. So this consists of a, a bunch of electrodes that are, uh, they electrically stimulate the hearing nerve. Yeah. Right? No, but how, I, 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 what I don't understand, it's like a transduction. Uh, I don't understand how it turns out to sound like this. Well, all right, because what it's a hearing device on the outside of, of your ear, right? Mm-hmm. And then it's, it turns the, the sound into an electrical signal and it stimulates the, the, ner- the inner ear nerve mm-hmm. that sends the message to your brain. So it's actually replacing the equipment of your ear. Yeah. 
and it's sending the electrical signal to your brain. And today's implants don't sound as good as a real ear, of course, but over time, the human ear will adjust to it and it won't sound as metallic and strange as that sounds. There. Oh, but, so this is actually what I would perceive if I had this implant. Right. In the, the beginning. beginning. In the beginning, it would gotcha. sound like that. So listen again. It is interesting now that you know what it is. Now that is really awesome. So Boz knows what it sounds like and has they, they constantly improve these devices so they, they represent what is really, you know, a, a clearer version of what is being heard. You know, I mean, it's a device that's talking to your brain. Yeah. That humans made. That's how awesome yep. that is. So thank you so much. Um, the winner this week is Jonathan Barth. And he says, is the sound of this week's Noisy the Skeptic's Guide intro theme as a profoundly deaf person would hear it after uh, processed through a cochlear implant? Yes. Does he have one? No, he doesn't. How does he know that? Because he read an article in Wired magazine. <laughs> he told that is me. Amazing. <laughs> yes, very cool, right? <laughs> um, so moving along, um, this week's Noisy. Very interesting. Somebody might know what it is. That was definitely sent in by a listener named who um, may want me to write his name as Alex. So sorry, dude. It, it, <laughs> 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 what what could I could Don't use email. my real name. Yeah. So uh, this week, guys, if you have any awesome noises you heard, please send them to me. And if you have a guess, send all that stuff to me at WTN at theskepticsguide.org. Okay. Thanks, Jay. It's time for science or fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fictitious, and I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one they think is the fake. Are you guys ready for this week? Sure. Yes. All right. Three interesting news items. Item number one, a recent study of the cosmic microwave background reveals for the first time evidence that the universe has a slight spin. Item number two, the World Health Organization recently declared that measles has been eliminated in the entirety of the Americas. Item number three, a recently published study demonstrates that riding a roller coaster can help remove kidney stones. Evan, go first. Okay. Okay. Um, a recent study of the cosmic microwave background, the CMB, reveals for the first time evidence that the universe has a slight spin. I'm not really surprised at that in a sense. I kind of always envision a spinning sort of uh, visual when I visualize, you know, things about the universe, you know, whether it's galaxies, whether it's clusters, whether it's, you know, lots of things. So if this turns out to be Science, I, I don't think I'll be that surprised. Um, but how do you get that from studying the cosmic microwave background? How, why would that reveal a spin? So I'm not really sure why. Number two, the World, the World Health Organization recently declared that measles has been eliminated in the entirety of the Americas. So the uh, North America and South America, huh? I don't know about this one. Um, that's a... That's quite a range. Uh, you're 
<laughs> you know, Canada to Argentina and everywhere in between. That's uh, that's quite a range of sp- of uh, area there, space. Um, I don't know about that one. A rec- the third one, a recently published study demonstrates that riding a roller coaster can help remove kidney stones. So uh, I suppose what's happening there is that you ride the roller coaster, you're getting kind of thrown around at speeds that you're not used to. They, what, break up somehow inside of you and then you, you know, pass them. Yeah. <laughs> um, because um, not long, I think they were talk. I think they use ultrasounds and stuff to kind of break up. Uh, kidney stones or other stones that are in the body so maybe it's along those same lines that vibration maybe in the roller coaster causes those similar vibrations so i think that one's plausible so is it the universe has a slight spin or is it that the measles are gone entirely in the americas oh gosh i'm gonna say that um the universe having a slight spin i don't think that one's right i think that one's fiction and i think that the reason why is that they cannot determine that from just studying the cosmic microwave background. Maybe they looked for it but didn't find it. Okay, Jay. All right, you bastard. <laughs> why? Oh, that's to Steve, not Evan. That, that was to Steve. No, Evan is not a <laughs> bastard. Uh, okay, so let me take these in reverse order, if you don't mind, Steve. Uh, this recent uh, recently published study that demonstrates riding a roller coaster can help remove kidney stones. Yes, I agree with this. Uh, roller coasters, especially the good ones, are very, very much vibrating you and shaking you and jostling you around, and that shakes kidney, kidney stones loose. Done. The next one, World Health Organization recently declared that measles were eliminated in the entirety of Americas. Now, this one, I could see this one going either way. I didn't hear about, like, the last case, but I don't think that this is impossible. I mean, we've been heading towards the elimination of these diseases, and if one of them happened to have been recently eliminated, I would say great. Um, Although the anti-vaccine BS, um, I would think, would have slowed this down or stopped it temporarily. But the thing about the first item is that the microwave background radiation revealing that the there's evidence that the universe has a slight spin in... A slight spin from what perspective? <laughs> Spinning to what? In what direction? According to whose perspective outside of our universe? This one can't be anything but utterly and absolutely wrong because there is no perspective outside of our universe. Thank you. I'm done. That's it. This one's a fake one. Anyone that doesn't say that has got parts on order. Okay, Kara. Well, okay. The universe has boundaries. So it's expanding it from all directions at all times, but it started somewhere and then it expanded outward. So it would have a spin around that point, right? I don't. I disagree with what you're saying, Jay. All right, all right, we'll talk after the reveal, Kara. Okay, I do agree that this is the fiction, but I don't agree with that being why. And I do think that if this were fact, like it would be CMB or potentially it could be CMB data that gave us some of that information. I, but I do agree that it's the fiction. I'm going to agree with both you and Evan. Um, and that's because this is the one that I know the least about in general. And Bob. Um, yeah, surprisingly, I don't have a lot to add, even the CMB one. Um, but yeah, the, uh, the roller coaster one. Yeah. I mean, lots of people pissing their pants on the roller coaster. I'm sure that would help things flow in. Uh, not, not me, not me, of course. But yeah, the, the G forces, the, the jostling, especially the, the wooden roller coasters, man. They just, they just 
throw you around like a rag. Oh, dog. the one at Lake um, Compounds is great. I love it, dude. It is, but man, it gives me. It actually gives me a headache because you're just bouncing around. I like it. I does like, throw you, know you? What's good. crazy about mm-hmm. that like one though what? is that it's it's a wooden coaster. I know you know this because you've been on it. That when it goes over a hump. The, the cars actually lift off the rails and there's that hook that holds them on so you can yeah. feel like the whole oh, car falling. So it's like, not it's just like, me with that sensation of being no, thrown out happening. of the of the car. No, it's, it's, it's sort of happening. Oh gosh, that's that, worse. Yeah, that part I love. It's the back and forth where your head actually hits the damn sides of the seat that, that annoy the crap out of me. Um, so yeah, so I'm going to say that one to make sense. That's science. Uh, the WHO. Uh, measles, yeah. Um yeah, like like others have said, I mean, I would think that the anti, anti the anti vaxxers would uh, have had an effect on this, and it's a little bit surprising uh, that that it's in you know that it's completely gone. But I mean, number one, the cosmic background microwave background radiation, that one, yeah, that that just and Jay I said it surprisingly well. I suspect he may have read the article. Um, because yeah, from what perspective? I mean, it's like, care, it's like, uh, it's like velocity. How fast is something going? Well, you have no idea unless you compare. One velocity, the velocity of A to the velocity of B. It's a it's a relative thing. Otherwise, it's, it's meaningless. So, so, but I would think that if something was spinning, that it would be going either fast. I don't know the basic physics, but I would think that the outsides farther away would be moving more quickly than the insides. Is that how spin works? So that's what like you would a, compare. Like it a record to. player. Yeah, like it's like Doppler shift, but with spin, like something moving to the left. If you look farther away, it's moving to the left faster. I think of it. I think of it more as as a monolithic spinning. Like say you were like inside a ball that was spinning. Unless you had knowledge of what was outside the ball, you would really have no idea that that you were spinning. Well, Um, yeah, but that's not what he said. He said based on evidence in the CMB, not based on like how we feel. No, but oh, that's but that that's just you, you it. The CMB is from within the is from within the really universe. inside the ball. There would be no um, uh, fluid dynamic measurements that you could take to know that you're spinning. Yes, there there probably there would be. Of course, there would be. That's where the analogy. That's where the analogy fell. And that's but where still, for me the CMB is our fluid dynamics. You know what I mean? That you can measure. Anyway, we all well, agree though that this one's a fiction. Right. So I'm going to say that's fiction. <laughs> and uh, I mean, I still I could be surprised by this, but it but my gut is uh, is to agree with Jay on that, and I would I would have said hmm, pretty much the same exact thing. That you know, how, how would you actually determine that from within? So let me say that's fiction. CMB. All right. Let's, <laughs> I'll take these in reverse order then. Of a recently published study demonstrates that riding a roller coaster can help remove kidney stones. You all think that that crazy one is science and that one is science. Yeah, baby. Somebody yeah, noted sounds. that should be up for an Ig Nobel Prize for next year. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, they, they took actually a 3D printed kidney onto a roller coaster and <laughs> to see if, you know, with, with little, you know, with fake stones in them to see if they, they would, the rate at which they moved through the kidney would change based upon whether or not it was, you know, on the roller coaster. And they found that it did. It actually helped the, the stones move through the, the 3D printed kidney. That's Here's a question. Interesting. What was more effective, riding in the front or the back? Oh, oh wow. Yes. Uh, the, both back. Are, the back. Both are awesome. Both have different By far, the back is whippier. The back, no, you bounce no higher in the yes, back. Yes, the back. No? The back is uh. Yeah. <laughs> By significant margin. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, but there's nothing and, like being in front, though, Jay. Being yeah, in front. Yeah, there's nothing like being in front. Nobody the back in front is of you, most uncomfortable. Intense. 
No, I know that. I'm just saying, though, from a a jostling perspective, the back is rougher. It's a rougher ride. It's funny because it sounded like you said from Jocelyn's perspective. I thought the same thing. Uh, (laughs) Steve, Steve, did the stones break up or they just passed? They just passed through, yeah. So Uh, this is based upon anecdotal observations that people pass kidney stones sometimes right after riding the roller coaster. And they said, okay, let's see if there's something actually going on here. So they, they came up with this, you know, 3D printed kidney model and they found that, yes, indeed, it does seem to have an effect. Now, this is obviously not the final word on this, uh, but it is one piece of an interesting evidence. Uh, and the idea is that it is the, uh, the G forces that you're pulling as you're whipping around that are really doing it. Isn't it fun when sometimes the plural of anecdote becomes data? <laughs> Well, yeah. the, the anecdotes are not necessarily wrong. They're just unreliable. Yep. You unreliable. Have, you have, it's not, it can't count it as hey, you evidence follow it up. on its the own. Legitimate, the legitimate function of an anecdote is as a guide towards actual rigorous study, you know, clinical research or whatever. Mm-hmm. So you just can't make conclusions. You can make a hypothesis based upon anecdotes, but you can't draw conclusions from anecdotes. And that's what they did. They That created a hypothesis, and they tested that hypothesis with some empirical data. And so far... It, there seems to be some support for it, but again, this is going to take more research to really evaluate this. And they said, that, but this may lead to, um, treatments, you know, maybe not necessarily going on a roller coaster, but you know, you could, I don't know, put people in one of those sent, you know, like the NASA things where they spin you around to see if you could, yeah, do centrifuge. Uh, yeah, like a human centrifuge. Yeah, there is an advantage to passing stones as soon as you get them because they, can get bigger over time. So you would definitely want to pass them while they're small because the bigger they get, the more they're going to hurt when you pass them. And So Steve, as a doctor though, would you agree that if I had kidney stones, I need to go down to like Disney World or uh, Universal Studios to, to treat myself? The preliminary evidence would support that, but I would. it's not evidence-based at this point in time, but it's definitely no plausible and supported by preliminary evidence. But Universal, uh, Jay, not not Disney for that. No, Disney. Also, this roller coaster was at Disney. This roller coaster was, (laughs) in fact, at Disney, but there's. What? They've got. Their roller coasters are kind of lame. No, because it's so. It's the the Big Thunder Mountain or whatever, because it's so rickety and like. Like it bounces you around a lot. That's why I thought the vibration had something to do with it. Yeah, but you go on a a mega roller coaster, you'll be jostled. Twice as yeah, much. Yeah, if it's wooden, but much. you don't want to go on a steel like one that's slick and goes upside down. It won't. It won't jostle you around that much, right? Yeah, big wooden one. Big wooden one. Okay, <laughs> we're gonna jump to number one. <gasps> oh, wow! A recent study of the cosmic microwave background reveals for the first time evidence that the universe has a slight spin. Now, before I reveal the answer, I want to correct a lot of the things that you guys said. I'm going to set this up properly. And then the reveal is going to be a little bit more interesting. So one question is, would an examination of the cosmic microwave background reveal whether or not the universe is spinning? And the answer is absolutely yes, it would. If the universe were spinning, there would be like a corkscrew kind of distortion to the cosmic microwave background. Oh, like it would be compressed in regions. Yeah, it would, kind of, it would have a little bit of a corkscrew to it. But it's also possible that the universe is expanding more in one direction than another direction. And if that were the case, then the the cosmic microwave background would not be uniform in every direction. It would be spreading out more in one direction than another. Right. So Mm -hmm. the deeper question is this. Is the universe uniform in every direction or is there – 
a directionality to the universe. Was it so, heterogeneous or homogeneous? Yeah, is the, I think right. it's homogeneously heterogeneous. Yeah, is the universe directionless <laughs> or is there any objective reference point for a direction in the universe? Obviously, if the universe were spinning, then that would create some objective reference point and some directions would be different than other directions in the universe. Sure. If the universe were expanding at different rates in different directions, that also would create an asymmetry where one direction would not be the same as any other in the universe. So that's the question. Is the universe absolutely uniform and directionless, or is there anything going on that creates any kind of directionality in the universe? That's what this study was. But what about the idea that um, wouldn't the universe have to have an end in order to be spinning? No. Yeah, like not Star Trek V kind of thing. I know. It's hard. No. If you can't imagine it, so don't even try. Because there's all <laughs> kinds of possibilities. The universe could be unbound but finite. And what well, is it spinning like, in? Like, like don't, the Earth. Yeah. Like what don't, did the study find? So that's – yeah. So I wanted to do that first because – so they, they studied the cosmic microwave background to look for any evidence of any asymmetry, any corkscrewing that would give any evidence that the universe was had a direction to it. And they found – that none. 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 But there was absolutely no direction <laughs> wow. to the yeah. universe. It would it would have been an amazing bit of news, in fact, if they had found anything it otherwise. Would have been yeah. Gigantic. Because that would have been a huge change in our cosmology. So this this supported the existing notion in cosmology that there is no direction in the universe. And so this study of the cosmic microwave background supports that or confirmed it, if you will, as much as it could. So yeah. But but it but it could they were looking they were looking to see is there evidence of a spin to the universe because who knows i mean it could be there's no reason there's it, there are they said there are theoretical possible spinning universes so it's not um incompatible with our current physics so okay. it, it, we could have found a spinning universe we, you know there's no reason why we 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 couldn't it's just that it's not so that our universe does not appear to have any preferred direction or any asymmetry in any direction I've always read that it, that it, that it's it's not spinning. I've always yeah, read that. Yeah. So I've got that firmly stuck in my head. So that's why this was so it just didn't make a lot of sense. Um, yeah, that's why you went. But last. but it's interesting though because yeah. my gut was that you you really wouldn't be able to tell from the inside, but apparently you can. So I was wrong. Yeah, they, no, you it could. Yeah. I yeah. still don't believe it. Okay. <laughs> All right. That means that the World Health Organization recently declared that measles has been eliminated in the entirety of the Americas, and that is science. So, so great. It's wow. great. It's not as great as it sounds, though. Yeah. Uh, so of course I, it the you have to know the difference between the word eliminated and eradicated. Eradicated. Yeah. yeah, it just means there's none right now. There's none right now. It's nice. not what it means not is permanent. eliminated means it's not endemic. That's what it means, mm -hmm. which means that it's not being continuously passed around from people inside this area, inside but the Americas. But it still exists. But it can still be brought in from the outside. Yeah. And so what that means is any new case of the measles in the Americas was introduced from somebody outside of the Americas. That's what that of means. Of course. And then when that happens, you have an outbreak, right? You can have a local mm -hmm. outbreak, but it's not endemic. But that's been true for a long time in the U.S. Yeah, that's the Disneyland outbreak was um, brought in from outside, right? So, so, Steve, that means that you cannot say the following statement. Measles has been eliminated from the planet. No. No, because no. by definition, that would be eradicated. Yes. 
Yeah. yeah. Steve, is that even <laughs> possible with a disease like this? Sure. To eradicate it? So, well, yes, it's possible. So what makes it possible to eradicate a disease? Uh, one feature is that it's, it's got to be something that we can prevent sufficiently. So meaning, which practically means it's a vaccine preventable disease. But two, it means there's no non-human reservoir. reservoir. If yeah. there was a reservoir in another animal, then it would be very difficult for us to eradicate it because, you know, we would, even if we eliminated it from the human population, it still would be alive in monkeys or pigs or whatever, and they could be reintroduced back into the human population from them. So small. That's why we keep getting Ebola outbreaks. Yes. Like it's always going to happen. Right. right. Ebola probably won't be able to eradicate it because it has non human mm-hmm. hosts. Lyme disease has non human hosts. Uh, but smallpox, no. And measles can be eradicated. Uh, polio can be eradicated. But to eradicate it, wouldn't you also have to remove it from every lab? That might have a sample? No. Why? No. You, you could reintroduce it into the population. I know, but yeah, I'm just but saying by the like an animal can, just like an animal can. But, no, but, but an animal can and will. But uh, the just this is just a, as a matter of definition, this is just the accepted definition. Mm-hmm. We there are smallpox in some lab somewhere. Yeah. We still consider it to be eradicated. So if it it means the elimination of the wild right, organism, okay. virus or bacteria in humans with no non-human reservoir but if we have it locked down in a lab somewhere we still consider it eradicated but i but guess you're back, correct yeah. in that it could be resurrected you know uneradicated or whatever if it were reintroduced from a lab sample back into the human population that would be mm-hmm. bad we wouldn't, that would suck, <laughs> we need another, we wouldn't we want need that to happen that. biological warfare. super eradicated yeah hyper eradicated <laughs> yeah, but you don't want to get rid of those samples because then, if for whatever reason it was, yeah, really how you're going to make have it, a sample yeah. to help, yeah, to help cure it. And at least you know where it, where it came from. Well, if that's the case. That's true. You, you do know thing. anyway. You have, you have its genetics there. right then. Yeah, I mean the, the the strains they have in the lab are different. You know, they're they they are they. Yeah, well, they know. Like, yeah, like if you get infected with a vaccine strain. Like if you get polio from the vaccine, they will know because it'll be a different strain than the wild type of the polio virus. Sure. So yeah, so it's great. So measles is no longer – and that's because of uh, aggressive vaccine campaigns in South America. Um, so eradic- so eliminating it from South America as well and you know making sure it's completely eliminated from North America. Uh, but it's still – so it's not endemic, but it can com- be, can be reintroduced from – Outside, so there can still be outbreaks. So that's why it's still important to vaccinate. Until it's er- er- actually eradicated, we have to continue. We have to keep up the, vac- the vaccination program. Oh. Yeah, yeah, don't stop getting Wouldn't your it- shots, people. Come on. Yeah. Most importantly, I, I won again. Thank you. Me too. Everyone did. I was happy to blaze the trail for all of you. Did you guys hear how many websites there are in North Korea? Yes. Ten or something. 28. 28 websites in the entire country. Most of them are about the leader. (laughs) Can you imagine? You guys saw the Kim Jong-un banned sarcasm. It's it's punishable. Mm -hmm. Sarcasm? Oh, that's going to work. Yeah, sarcasm towards (laughs) him or the regime is punishable by law. That's a really great idea. All right, well, congratulations, everyone. Good job. Thank you, Steve. Hey, Thank thanks. you. Evan, give us a quote. Cutting off fundamental curiosity-driven science is like eating the seed corn. 
We may have a little more to eat next winter, but what will we plant so we and our children will have enough to get through the winters to come? And that was written by Carl Sagan in the book, The Demon Haunted World, yeah. Science is a Candle in the Dark. Thought, thought that sounded familiar. That is a great, great quote. Well, thank you all for joining me this week. Thanks, thank you, Steve. Thanks, Doctor. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible. Uh-huh.